Well, good morning, ladies. Come on in and find a seat. So happy to see so many people here this morning. I've got a couple announcements before we get started. Um, If you haven't registered, please register. If you registered in person and not online, you need to fill out a piece of paper so that you can get email announcements, and they're out by the coffee bar. Just fill in your email address and leave it at the coffee bar. Um, The Attributes of God study will be starting today after this class in Jonathan Todd's classroom, which is right next door here. So if you're in that, just shuffle on over next door. So welcome back to Bible study. Seems like a long time since we've been in here. Um, Let's pray and get started. Father, you are a good and glorious God, and we thank you for your grace and your mercy on us. Father, um, you need to be our teacher in this study because it's difficult. And Father, we ask that you would be with us as we study. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your son, and we thank you in his name. Amen. All right, so last semester, we studied Leviticus, the most difficult book in the Old Testament, but we got through it, and I learned a lot from it. Now we're heading into Hebrews, which is arguably the most difficult book in the New Testament. What on earth are we doing? Are we actually trying to kill women's Bible study? I think Kim's still a little bit worried that this will be the year it dies. But we really have put some thought into this, and I want to explain it to you so that you won't think we've just lost our minds. So the theme of Leviticus was the absolute holiness of God and the need for God's people to be holy. God graciously gave the Israelites ways that they could be in his presence safely. He gave them priests and sacrifices and purity laws, the Levitical system, and that's what we looked at last semester. God did this because he desired to dwell with his people. To me, one of the most amazing things about the Bible is that God God even desires to dwell with us. Why on earth would he? The Bible begins with God in the garden, dwelling with Adam and Eve, and it ends with God in another garden, the new heaven and new earth, dwelling with his redeemed people. In Genesis 3, sin enters the picture. And from then on, everything is broken. The Bible is the story of redemption, how God's going to get from Genesis 1 and 2 to Revelation 21 and 22. One of the first steps was the Levitical system we looked at last semester. I don't know if you noticed this, but last year, if you did the cross-references, last semester, if you did the cross-references, many of them were in the book of Hebrews. Maybe even most of them were in the book of Hebrews. There's a reason for that, and that's because God's plan of redemption has always been Jesus. Ephesians 1.4 tells us we were chosen in him before the foundation of the earth. Jesus is not plan B. God didn't look down and say, oh my goodness, they have messed it up again. We better think of something else. Jesus has always been plan A. Well, does that mean the Levitical system was wrong or bad? No, of course it wasn't. It was given by God. It just wasn't complete. God reveals himself in the Bible in stages, and that was the first stage. So since Jesus has always been plan A, the Old Testament is meant to point us to him. 
Jesus himself says this in Luke, that the Old Testament speaks of me. So one of the things we look for in the Old Testament is how does this point us to Jesus? Well, the New Testament book that explains that best is the book of Hebrews. And that's why we're doing Hebrews this semester. Hebrews helps us to understand what we just studied in Leviticus. You'll never understand Hebrews better than you will right now, having just studied Leviticus. Now, if you weren't in the Leviticus study, I'm not giving you permission to pack up your notebooks and leave. You will still get a lot out of the study. So last semester, we left Israel in the desert, God dwelling with them in the tabernacle. Eventually, the tabernacle was replaced by the temple in Jerusalem. But in the year 70 AD, the Roman army destroyed Jerusalem, including the temple. It was wiped out, and it has never been rebuilt. It's been impossible since the year 70 AD to draw near to God in the Levitical system because the sacrifices can only be made at the temple. The Jews today cannot keep Levitical law. So where does that leave us? Well, 40 years before the temple was destroyed, Jesus was crucified, buried, rose again, and ascended to heaven. A new way of dwelling with God has been established. That's what Hebrews is about. So let's take a look at Hebrews, and we'll start the way we always do. Let me get my prop out by looking at the envelope. So I received this envelope in the mail a while ago. Looks like it's been dropped in a mud puddle, run over by a truck, and then eaten by squirrels. <laughs> it's really hard to tell who this is to, who it's for, when it was sent, anything that you would normally find on an envelope. The book of Hebrews is kind of like that. Some of you probably don't even remember getting letters in the mail. Back in the day, people used to communicate by letter before texts and emails and cell phones. When you got an envelope, you'd look at it and you'd see who sent it, who it was to, where those people were both located, and the date it was sent. You could tell all that from looking at the envelope. When you look at the envelope from Hebrews, you can't tell any of that. We don't know who the author was. We don't know who the letter was sent to. We don't know where either one of those groups was located. And we don't know the date. So we can just pack up and go home, right? No, we're going to have to do a little bit of investigation to find out something about them. So the author. The author does not identify himself. Hebrews is the only truly anonymous book in the New Testament. Over the years, many scholars have tried to figure out who wrote the book. Some people have suggested it was Paul. Hebrews is written in very elegant, polished Greek. That's not the Greek Paul wrote in. He wrote in the common Greek. And in 2.3, the author of Hebrews says that the gospel message was declared first by the Lord and attested to, attested to us by those who heard it. So he had a secondhand knowledge of the gospel. Paul states very adamantly that he got the gospel directly from Jesus. So I think we can rule out Paul. Some people have suggested Barnabas because he was a Levite and his name means son of encouragement. And Hebrews is all about the Levites and encouragement. 
maybe. Others think it was Apollos of Acts 18. He was eloquent. He was well-versed in scripture. He was from Alexandria, which was the center of ancient learning. Maybe it was him. Some say Luke. Seems hard to imagine a Gentile would have written this letter because it's all about Jewish things. Some even say Priscilla. And the, that's the reason the letter is anonymous, because they wouldn't have accepted a letter from a woman. But I think we can rule her out, too, because there's a place in the letter where the author refers to himself with a male participle. It was definitely a male who wrote Hebrews. Even the early church fathers closest to the time the book was written didn't know what to do with Hebrews. Origen said, only God knows who wrote this book. And we know that all scripture is God-breathed, and men were wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the real author of Hebrews, of course, is God. Now, we don't know the author's name, but what do we know about him? We can actually know quite a lot about him from the book. The letter reads more like a sermon than a letter. It just starts out, bang, this is Jesus, and goes on to explain. It doesn't start with greetings or hello or blessing or any of that stuff. I think it was a sermon meant to be read aloud in this congregation it came to. So I'm going to call him the preacher. What do we know about the preacher? We know he received the gospel from eyewitnesses. He himself was not a direct witness to Jesus' life and death and resurrection. Most likely, he was taught by the, one of the apostles. We know he has a previous relationship of love and authority with the people he's writing to. He longs to see them. He's not afraid to give them admonitions and stern warnings. He was probably a preacher or an elder at their church. He was highly educated in the Greek system. He writes eloquent Greek. He uses Greek thought and rhetoric, and he quotes, his quotes are from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Bible. And people can tell that because there are slight differences from the Hebrew. And we know he was probably a Jew or a Jewish convert because he knows the ins and outs of Judaism. He knows their worship. He knows their history. His mind is clearly saturated with scripture because he quotes scripture, what seems like every other verse. And as you're studying, it might help you to go to some of those verses that he's quoting because it'll give you a bigger picture of what he's talking about than just looking at the quotation. But most importantly, we know he loves Jesus. Hebrews is possibly the most Christ-exalting book in the New Testament. Somebody, I think maybe it was Dr. Young, said this is nosebleed Christology. Christ is exalted so high. The preacher absolutely adores Jesus. So who is he writing to? Well, he was writing to Hebrews, to Jews. These are Jews who had accepted Christ as their Messiah. They were Jewish Christians. Actually, the title Hebrews is not in the original text of the letter. It was added in the second century by the church fathers. But I think it's safe to assume that he was writing to Jews just because of all the Old Testament scripture and all the references to the Levitical system 
and all the references to the church, to, to the Old Testament saints that he has in the book. He just throws them in there without any context or explanation. He expects the people to know what he's talking about. So I think it's safe to assume they are Jewish converts. We know at least some of them are immature believers. Chapter 5 says they need milk, not meat, when they should be teachers by now. So they've been believers for some time, but are still immature in their faith. Chapter 13 says they've been exposed to some false teaching, and we don't know exactly what that teaching was, but some kind of false teaching had crept in. And we know they've been persecuted. In chapter 10, it says that church members have suffered persecution gladly, public reproach, afflictions, imprisonment, and seizure of property. We know that probably because of the persecution, some of them are thinking about going back to Judaism. It's safe. It's what they've always known. We know the preacher is writing to a church congregation. Just like any church, even ours, church is made up of some people who have been born again and some people who have not been born again. There may be people in the congregation who have intellectually accepted everything that's been said about Christ, but aren't really trusting him. There may be people who've been dragged there by the husband or the wife or the parent. There are people that he's writing to who have not been born again. This is important to keep in mind when you read some of the warnings. If you assume these warnings are all to believers, you're going to be very confused. So remember that he's writing to a congregation, some of whom are not believers. So where was the preacher and where was the congregation? The only clue we have is this. It's 1324. He says, those from Italy send you greetings. Now, possibly the preacher was writing from Italy to a congregation somewhere else, saying, those of us, those of us who are in Italy send you greetings. But the more likely way to read that is, those Italians who are with me where I am send their greetings back to you who are in Italy. We know the letter to the Hebrews was widely known in Rome very, very early. Clement wrote a letter to the Corinthian church in 95 or 96 AD, quoting extensively from Hebrews. The Corinthian church, yes, was still in trouble. Um, so most scholars believe it was written to a Messianic congregation in Rome. And I'm going to assume that for the rest of this. When was it written? Well, we don't have a date. Where are we in redemptive history? Jesus has come, died, risen, and ascended, so sometime after 30 AD. The preacher speaks about returning to the Levitical system as if that were still possible. So I think we can assume the temple is still standing, so before 70 AD. In 1323, the preacher says Timothy has been released and may come to see them. I'm assuming Paul's Timothy, and I'm assuming released from prison. Well, Timothy accompanied Paul during his second and third missionary journeys. Timothy was with Paul in Rome when Paul was in prison, but Timothy was not in prison. There's no record in Acts or in any of Paul's letters of Timothy being in prison. Acts ends in 61 AD, so I'm assuming... This letter was written afterwards. Timothy must have been in prison sometime after 61 AD. So 
according to Hebrews 10, there was persecution in the church. Here's what we know about Christian persecution in Rome. In the early days of the church, when the church was mostly Jewish, the converts were persecuted by their Jewish brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. They were cut off from the families and the Jewish community entirely. Um, the book of Acts is full of Jews attacking Paul. That's what happened in the early church. In Rome, Christianity was first considered a sect of Judaism, part of Judaism. That's because the early church was still mostly Jewish. It was an officially sanctioned state religion because it was a racially segregated group of people. Here was everybody else, and here were the Jews off to the side, and they're allowed to practice their own religion. So Christianity came under the wing of Judaism, and it was okay. But gradually, the church became more Gentile, became more Roman, had people from all over the earth that belonged to it. And that's when the church became a problem for Rome. Here's a group of people who won't worship the Roman gods and who won't say Caesar is Lord. That's a problem for Rome. So more and more persecution started happening to the church. Um, Christians were ridiculed. They were beaten. They were imprisoned. They lost businesses. They lost jobs. The exact same kind of persecution is described in Hebrews 10. They were accused of being cannibals because of the Lord's Supper. They were accused of being atheists because they would not worship the Roman gods. And they were dangerous revolutionaries because they wouldn't say Caesar is Lord. So in 64 AD, a fire broke out in Rome. And it burned for six days. It burned through the city. At the end of it, hundreds of people had died. And 10 of the 14 districts of the city were in ruins. Historians have long suspected that Emperor Nero had the fire started. He wanted to redesign the architecture of the city. He didn't like the slums so close to the palace. And he wanted to bypass the Senate. And frankly, he was a lunatic. A lot of people think Nero caused that fire to happen. Well, rumors began that Nero had caused the fire to happen. And to squash these rumors, Nero blamed it on the Christians. They were already unpopular. Let's pick them. So starting around 65 AD, hundreds of Christians were arrested and tortured and martyred. So I think Hebrews was written before that happened, before 65 AD. So probably between 61 and 65 AD, early 60s. And the Holy Spirit knew what was about to hit these Christians. So what is Hebrews about? Hebrews is about the superiority of Jesus Christ to everything else. Remember, this book is written to believers who are facing persecution, and some of them are tempted to return to the familiar ways of Judaism. The preacher wants them to recognize the futility and the danger of doing that and to persevere in their faith. The key word in Hebrews is better or some synonym for better. Jesus is better than, he's superior to, he's more than, he's greater than. You fill in the blank, anything they could think of. And the preacher begins with the most important thing first, the first three verses of Hebrews. Say, Jesus, 
is God. Let's read the first three verses. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Those are claims that Jesus is God. He's better than prophets, angels, Moses, Joshua, the Levitical priesthood, the Old Covenant, the tabernacle sacrifices. He offers a better message of salvation, a better rest, a better covenant, better promises, better hope, better possessions. The preacher is saying over and over again, what you have in Jesus is infinitely better than anything else you could possibly find. So pay attention, hold fast, be diligent, draw near, press in, encourage one another, run the race. That's the positive encouragement Hebrews gives. But he's also sternly warning his flock, don't fall away, don't turn away from Jesus, don't neglect his word, don't be unbelieving, don't reject his salvation, don't continue in deliberate sin, don't become bitter, don't fail to enter his kingdom. Don't do it because it's futile and dangerous, and you'll fall under God's judgment. So I'd love to be able to hand you out an outline of Hebrews. I've taught Hebrews before, so I've got a lot of commentaries, probably at least 10. Each one of them has a different outline. They're all different. So what I want to do is give you a pic of the picture of the book like we did last semester. I'm a visual learner. I like to see a picture. Um, part of this is from the Bible Project, which is an excellent overview of all the books of the Bible. And again, PowerPoint and I are still on a break. So we are going old school again. <laughs> Sorry. In fact, we're going so old school, I had to kind of MacGyver up an extension on the board so I could fit the things up there. <laughs> I used duct tape this morning. Okay, so the, the preacher begins by saying, Jesus is God. He is God's final word. He spoke through the prophets in many ways, many times, but Jesus is God's final word. He's the owner of all things because he's the heir of all things. He's the creator. He upholds the universe. He's the sustainer. He made purifications for sin. He's the redeemer. And he sat down at the right hand of God. He's the king. All of these are attributes of God. And the Hebrews would have, understand, would have understood what he was saying. So key word, better. Jesus is better. And he's going to list all the things that Jesus is better than. In chapters 1 and 2, Jesus is better than God's messengers. In previous times, the prophets and the angels. Jesus is the final word of God. And then he gives an encouragement and a warning. He encourages them, pay attention to what Jesus has said. Do not drift away. How, how will it be if you lose your salvation? 
don't neglect such a great salvation. Chapters 3 and 4, he's better than God's other leaders. So Jesus is better than Moses and Joshua. Those were the famous leaders that the Jews would have. In fact, they almost worship Moses today. Um, they were to bring people, God's people into the promised rest, into the promised land. They failed. Jesus succeeded. So the, the preacher says, enter God's rest. Don't be hardened by sin and unbelief like the Israelites were in the wilderness. Jesus is better than the Levitical priesthood. He is an eternal priest. He doesn't die, and he is a sinless priest. We think, I think as Protestants, we don't think priests are necessary. When we think about priests, we think about Roman Catholicism and that we don't need priests. But we do need a priest. We need someone to stand between us and God, and that priest is Jesus. He says, hold fast to him and don't fall away. Jesus is better than the old covenant and the old sacrifices. He has come to replace them. The old covenant of external works with an internal covenant of the heart. The old sacrifices that went on and on and on and on with one sacrifice for all. He says, draw near to God through the path that Jesus has made. And don't go on deliberately sinning putting Jesus to shame. And then he takes a little diversion in chapter 11 with the Old Testament saints. They're an example of encouragement to these people. These are people who hung on by faith no matter what happened to them. And he encourages the people to run with endurance and not grow weary. And then there's sort of a negative example talking about God's discipline, chapter 12. He reminds them that God's discipline is for their good, even though they may not think it is. It's to make them more holy. I imagine they perceived some of their persecution as not God's discipline, where, in fact, it probably was. Discipline doesn't mean punishment. Discipline, discipline means training. So he tells them, strive for holiness and don't grow bitter like Esau does. He throws in Esau as an example. And then finally, he speaks about the two mountains that represent the two kingdoms. They knew about the terror that happened at the first, at the first mountain, at Mount Sinai. And he's saying, you don't go to Mount Sinai anymore where you're in terror of God's judgment. Remember the people ran away and said, don't let him speak to us anymore. They were so afraid. You come to Mount Zion, and he describes it as a party. And he says, because of that, offer acceptable worship to God. And that's what chapter 13 is. It's acceptable worship to God. Do not refuse him who is speaking. So that's the basic outline of the book. It's a little more jumbled up than that. <laughs> which you'll see when you get into it. But that's the basic outline. So what does Hebrews have to do with us? 
I had a woman in my group one time who was a converted Jew, um, but not many of us are going to fall into that category. We're Gentile through and through. We aren't tempted to return to Judaism. Why do we need to study Hebrews? Well, first of all, I'm going to give you the same reason I always give you, because it's God's word. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. We can know with certainty that God has something to teach us in Hebrews. Probably many things, and probably not all of us will learn the same things. Hebrews tells us God's word is active and living. Expect it to speak to you, to speak into your life, into your circumstances. And God's word is sharper than a two-edged sword. Expect it to cut you, to expose things in your life that are not pleasing to God. That's a good thing. Secondly, God uses his word to transform us. Romans 12, 2 tells us, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Yes, we're here to use our minds to learn, but learning is not an end in itself. We're here to let what we learn transform us. The goal of Bible study is not knowledge alone, but knowledge that changes us. Knowledge that leads to sanctification. Bible study should be making you more holy, and holiness is a good thing. And lastly, although there probably are a hundred other reasons, I'm going to stop here. Hebrews, I hope, will make you fall in love with Jesus all over again. Jesus is better than anything. You fill in the blank. Jen Wilkins said, sin feels more familiar, more natural to us than holiness. Because of our sin nature, I think that's true. We're tempted to return to the old ways. What are the old ways we're reluctant to give up? What are the things that tempt us? What are the things that make us dissatisfied with what God has provided for us? What idols are we worshiping in our hearts? I hope Hebrews will help you learn to see that these old ways are futile and dangerous. The only thing that can replace them is something we know to be better. The only way to obtain victory over sin is to find satisfaction in something better. And Jesus is better. Let that sink down into your soul this semester. Jesus is better. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that um, you will meet us and you will teach us and you will change us. And Father, we rely on you to help us love Jesus more. We know he's better in our heads, Lord, but help us to know it in our hearts. Help us to see how much better he is than anything else we're tempted with. Father, help us, and I know you will because your goal is for us to become more like Jesus. Help us become more like him. We ask this in his name. Amen.